The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it was a golden age of war reporting and fiction. That period from, let's say, the 1920s to the 1980s, before the end of the Cold War and the rise of the Internet took away some of its power and glamour. These were days when newspapers sent correspondents into battlefields for periodic updates on what was happening. And the correspondents, after trying to capture reality in the form of journalism, turned to fiction to attempt to capture some larger truths. Ernest Hemingway might stand as the ultimate example, and Frederick Forsyth and Graham Greene right behind him. James McManus stands firmly in this tradition. We talked to him about his days reporting on the war in Rhodesia in the 1970s as foreign correspondent for The Guardian, and his new novel, Love in a Lost Land, today on the History of Literature. Hello, 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 everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, the host of the podcast. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for stopping by. This is a day full of nostalgia. Nostalgia for those bygone days of journalistic courage, typewriters and newspapers, the world in which I grew up. A lot of us did. And as we were growing up, we looked to reporters like James McManus to tell us what was happening in the world. And then these guys so often turn to literature. We'll ask James why he did that. He now works for the Times Literary Supplement as its managing director. So he's very well positioned to talk about this move from journalism to fiction and literature. And then we'll close things out with my last book. Why don't we check in with our friend Peter K. Anderson, who wrote the biography of the real-life fool who lived with kings. Peter will tell us his choice for the last book he will ever read. But first, James McManus. Okay, joining me now is James McManus, the director of the Times Literary Supplement. He's also the author of several books, including Ocean Devil, The Life and Legend of George Hogg, On the Broken Shore, and Midnight in Berlin. He's here today to discuss his eighth book, Love in a Lost Land. James McManus, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. So, Love in a Lost Land is inspired by the time you spent reporting on the war in Rhodesia in the 1970s as foreign correspondent for The Guardian in the UK. But I'd like to back up a little bit and ask how your career began. When did you start in the newspaper business, and what were you first working on? Um, I was at St. Andrews University in Scotland studying history, and there I edited the university, or the student newspaper, I should say, and that just hooked me completely. I knew then what I wanted to do in my life. Mm. So when I left the university, I got a job on the Daily Express in Manchester, which was then, the paper was then a very big-selling newspaper. It was rather different from what it is today. And they didn't know what to do with me because I was a, a university graduate. I had a, a good sort of two one in, in modern history. And so they made me the, uh, the gossip columnist. And I had to go around the north of England <laughs> talking to lots of lord and ladies. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you became foreign correspondent. Had you reported on any wars before you went to Rhodesia? Yes, I did. The Express sent me to Belfast in 1969-70. And at that time, it was uh, a really terrible place. I mean, the sectarian warfare was uh, killing completely innocent civilians. Uh, British troops were on the streets of Belfast, which was an absolute nonsense when you think about it. 
And my job, as I was the number three in the in the reporting team, was to go to explosions and shootings and and, and acts of violence afterwards and talk to the survivors, which I did, which was a sort of a fairly kind of a gruesome task. And the one thing that struck me about that and taught me a lot about dealing with people who had been in uh, such situations was the sheer shock that these people were in. They could hardly talk, hardly sort of make sense of their feelings. And that, I think, influenced me greatly. It, it, it was a fairly terrible thing to, to witness. Mm. Even though you had the advantage of language and, and sort of uh, probably some understanding of the culture, you weren't able to get them to open up because of what they had gone through. Well, I don't want to exaggerate this. Of course, some people uh, were, they all talked, but I mean, what they were saying was almost sort of stream of consciousness deriving from their shock. I mean, it, yeah. it, it wasn't sort of, a lot of it wasn't really kind of comprehensible. Right, right. Okay, so then Rhodesia arises. What was happening in Rhodesia, and how was it perceived by the outside world when you left? I got to Rhodesia, and this time I was working for the Guardian newspaper in uh, 19, end of 1973-74. Rhodesia then was, um, uh, in common parlance, a rebel racist uh, regime mm -hmm. uh, in which a small white minority of 250,000-odd were uh, in charge, basically, and running the lives of six million um, Africans. Mm. And that was the sort of view from abroad. Mm -hmm. It wasn't quite like that when I got there. Yeah. What was your assignment or what was your entry point? Were you just, I, I, I'm not sure how it works for foreign correspondents covering war. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was the Paris correspondent of The Guardian. I had a lovely time. I had a favorite restaurant. I had a beautiful French girlfriend and a white sports car. <laughs> and in April 1974, the Portuguese coup happened in Lisbon. And the African colonies of Portugal, that's Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, became independent. And the Guardian said to me, go to Africa. So I did, and I never saw the white sports car or the girlfriend again. Yeah, right. And they just basically, they leave it up to you. What do you do? Who you talk to? What you try to cover? And you, I yep. guess you're, are you phoning back to an editor who gives you some instructions? Or, or how does that work? Well, it's a very good question, actually, because it, it differs from paper to paper. The Guardian gave me a very free hand to work in what was then Rhodesia. The paper was a left wing. It was highly critical of the regime. And my job was to try and stay in there and report. In other words, not to take viewpoint stances and not to get into sort of condemnation of the regime from a moral point of view. Expressing moral viewpoints isn't really part of what a foreign correspondent should do. Mm. Do you go in there with a feeling that you're going to be facing a lot of personal danger? Or do you set that aside? It's your state of mind when you go. Well, it, yes, it's another good question. Um, I arrived there, and I was a complete newcomer. I had never been to Africa before, uh, let alone to this um, rebel regime, where the beginnings of the guerrilla war were beginning to make themselves felt on the white population. My sort of guiding uh, uh, kind of rule in, in all the journalism I practiced is to talk to the little people, talk to the, the man behind the bar, talk to the man who is driving a taxi, talk to the women who are in the shops and try and get their viewpoint. Mm. Because if you're covering a war, obviously you've got to try and talk to those who are fighting it and those who are suffering from it. But equally, those who are suffering from it are normally the forgotten because they're the little people in the townships or out more often than not in Rhodesia, out in the bush. And it was those people I tried to talk to. 
Obviously, mm. you listen to what the government says and you listen to what the spokespeople for the Nationalist Corps says. You, of course you do. Mm-hmm. And I think by doing that, I sort of won a certain amount of respect from the regime who allowed me to stay there because I, as I say, I was trying to be even-handed. Right. So the regime, for example, they're reading what you're writing as well. They're getting all the newspapers. Absolutely. Uh, they see it on the way. And in those days, we had uh, telex machines. That was the way we communicated. Mm-hmm. It's funny to think of that now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, they, they saw everything. But when I say I talk to the little people, I also talk to the white farmers and uh, their families who are out way off in the bush and who were at risk. And they live behind, as it is, this is all in my book, actually, live behind a barbed wire and they had anti-grenade screens over the windows and so on and so forth. And I talked to them and tried to get their viewpoint as to why this war was going on, because it was quite clear to me very early on that this was a sort of a, a suicide mission, this white regime. Uh, declaring illegal independence, facing sanctions, and then facing a guerrilla war. I mean, it was crazy. Mm. And you say uh, early in the book, the remembrance of those days still makes me shiver and reach for a glass of whiskey. Uh, What was it that was making the experience stand out like that? Well, the the five years I spent in that country um, covering that conflict and covering the outcome of it, finally, the independence, uh, getting to know people like Robert Mugabe quite well, the nationalist leader, were very, very memorable. They were very exciting for me. They taught me a huge amount, not just about uh, what was going on there, but about myself. And that is why, looking back, I, I just feel not a sort of nostalgia, but I just feel that slight shiver of, did I do it right? Mm-hmm. Could I have done it better? And this is where the book has come from. I do draw very deeply on my experiences in that country at that time. Why are you better positioned now to tell the story than you would have been at the time? Or what what makes you think you can kind of second guess yourself in that way? Is it the passage of time or have you learned something since then? Um, Well, first of all, this book is a, a novel, of course, although it's very historical, if you like. Looking back at what I did then, and yes, there are lots of things I would have changed. I would have, for instance, to take one example... I saw quite a lot of Robert Mugabe uh, in exile after he fled the country in 1975. And I slightly fell for his sort of charm, if you like. He didn't tell me very much. I never got through to the inner man. He never revealed very much of himself. When one tried to talk about his family or his upbringing, you know, I learned a little bit about how the missionaries taught him uh, English and how he studied English and how he liked the poetry of T.S. Eliot, which he later denied. But that was all. And I regret the fact that I didn't dig deeper. Mm, Right. Okay. So you also say uh, that you found some romance in the war, and you you define that carefully as romance in the old sense, the romance of men and women fighting against logic and history for a doomed cause. Uh, I mean, what was was kind of motivating the people, and, and what was your view of them? Did it... You mentioned a little bit that it felt like it was a suicide mission, but it just... uh, I wonder if you could talk about the different players and kind of who the who the figures were and what they sure. how you viewed them at the time. Well, what struck me most forcibly when I got there and I began to talk to the white community, be they in the towns or out on the farms, is their utter conviction that they had right on their side, that they were the best. This minority was the best answer for all the country. 
And I couldn't understand it because they knew and they admitted to me that this was going to start a war. In fact, it had started a war and a war they could not win. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, you're like the sort of the Jews at the Masada Fortress when the Romans attacked. And, you know, we all know that story. They all committed suicide at the end because they knew they were going to lose. And I said to these people, this is what's going to happen to you. You're not going to win this war. Why don't you settle now and strike the best possible deal you can? And they explained to me that I didn't understand the deep roots they had in the country, how they built it up. The initial pioneers came there in the 1890s, and the country developed in the 20s and 30s. But the interesting thing is that the country developed in a partnership between the white minority and the black majority, who provided the labor to build the roads, the dams, and the airfields, and so on and so forth. And that partnership was never recognized by the white minority. Had they somehow in the 30s understood that, there would have been a very different outcome in Rhodesia, I think. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from James McManus. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So let's talk a little bit about what it's like to write a book like this and, and just maybe a little bit about being a war reporter in general. So you wrote this as a novel. Uh, what can you do with a novel that you couldn't do if you had uh, tried to retrace these steps in nonfiction? <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, obviously, there are romantic affairs in this, in this book. Mm-hmm. And my lead uh, male character, Richard Brady does work for a New York magazine, very like the New Yorker, in fact, although I didn't name it as such. And he does uh, have an affair and fall in love with a an African teacher, Patience, who works in the townships and who has a passion for teaching her students Shakespeare. Now, did that happen to me, my friends and other people readers ask? And the answer is, always in these sorts of stories, there's a sort of a composite element of the people you're putting together. Right. Um, in this case, obviously, I was in the frame, so to speak. And Richard Brady does, without any question, draw heavily on the sort of person I was and what I was thinking at the time. I'm not sure I'm really answering your question, but I'm doing my best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is, 
This is a work of imagination very much based on what happens. And the dividing line between what is imagination and what is fact is a very difficult one. And I'm not even sure that I can tell that, you know, where that line is drawn. Do you think you had in mind the reader and, and this is the effect I can produce in the reader? Or do you think you had in mind yourself and thinking, well, I'll be freer to write what I really want to write if I don't have to stick too closely to the truth and I have room for my imagination to do some work here? Again, a good question. I always think of the reader. Mm-hmm. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I, in all my novels, I have uh, sort of made sure that I have a fairly fast-moving narrative. I believe uh, in getting the reader to turn the pages and wanting to know what happens next. Yeah. Um, I don't do that to the point where I sort of overlook or ignore the side stories and the characters because characterization is obviously vital. If readers don't buy into a character, they're not going to follow the story through. I'm not sure if that answers the question. <laughs> no, <laughs> I get, get some. Yeah, I think so. Do you feel like, I mean, often people will say, well, in, in some ways, fiction can get at a greater truth than nonfiction. There's, um, you know, because of the power of fiction and the power of storytelling and the way fiction can kind of balance different um, outcomes or or different, you know, can keep contradictory things both afloat at the same time, which is actually maybe closer to the truth. I absolutely 100% agree with that. Mm. Um, And that's why I write fiction. Mm-hmm. It does get to uh, areas that, quite frankly, nonfiction can't get to. The hi- that there's no, there's been no proper history written of the Rhodesian conflict, what began it, and what it led to. And there's been an awful lot of reporting about that, and there have been some side stories, books, and so on and so forth. And I do think, and I have been told this by Zimbabwean citizens living here who become my readers in England, that it does take them back to what their parents were going through. In the, in the 70s. And it's not just what the, the Africans are going through. Well, they, they paid a very big price out in the, in the countryside uh, for the war. It's what the young white people, boys and girls, young men and women, also felt. They were sort of born into that society and, if you like, trapped by it. They had no choice in where they were going to be born, did they? And when the call-up came, the boys were given a gun and off they went into the bush. So... I can describe those things much more clearly and, 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 and bring them to the attention of the reader in fiction than I could possibly have done in fact. Mm, right. Okay. Let's uh, talk a little more broadly about war reporting in general. And how do you, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but <laughs> uh, how do you do it? I mean, what, what do you set yourself some, some guidelines or some rules? How do you make sure that you're being objective uh, or is objectivity even sort of the goal or how do you avoid taking sides or how do you present to your audience an accurate picture when there are, um, you know, your sympathies might be leaning in one direction or another, or you might feel like one side is, has a more just cause or uh, how do you balance all of that? Well, you do start in in any conflict, because I also worked in the Middle East after my, my time in Africa, with the absolute sort of iron rule that you are going to be fair to all sides, you are going to be objective. It's almost impossible to do that, mm-hmm. because when you talk to both sides in a conflict, you're not getting the truth. You're getting their version that mm-hmm. they want you to report. Yeah, And so you then have to make a judgment as to whether you repeat what is essentially a propagandist sort of account 
uh, that they give you of what's going on, uh, or try and make your own judgment. And of course, in making your own judgment, you are inevitably influenced by what you think and feel about the situation. Yeah. And so um, it is extremely difficult. Um, and I'm, I'm, I have utter admiration for the correspondents, British, American, French, whatever, who are in the Middle East right now, trying to deal with an extremely difficult, tragic situation in which truth is very hard to find. Mm-hmm. Is the answer to to try to be upfront about one's leanings and inclinations? But that's not always the kind of reporting that I read or value. It, it you know, not everything is a personal essay. There are facts that can be presented in a more of a straight news format. But is how do reporters try to manage their own potential for bias? Yes, uh, again, a good question. <laughs> It's very difficult to answer that because in every single case, you know, it differs. Mm, mm-hmm. Some reporters are just, are just openly enamored with one side in a conflict and make that clear, and it is clear to the readers. But that completely destroys what they're trying to say, in my view, anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, I think if the reader of a newspaper article understands that the reporter is doing his best to try and get to the actual sort of truth of the matter, mm-hmm. um, and it's not rushing to judgment, as we've seen with the bombing of the um, the hospital in Gaza, of course. Everybody, including the New York Times, rushed to one conclusion, which now turns out to be pretty certainly false. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not easy, is the answer. And you simply have to, at the end of the day, when you have a very large whiskey and trying to forget some of the horrors you've seen, just sit down and say, did I get that right? And then you probably add stuff and add, you know, it, it's tough. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're in a country like that, you're aware of the other reporters and you're thinking, well, I know so-and-so is going to is going to accept this version because they're more inclined to accept what the what one side oh, says. Sure. And yeah, so you're all kind of you're you're doing the same job, but you're aware that you're doing it in different ways. Absolutely. I mean, in Rhodesia and what was then Salisbury, there was a, a, a club that journalists used to gather in called the Quill Club. Mm-hmm. In Lebanon, when I was there, there was a Commodore Hotel. In these places, journalists would always gather after their trips to work out in the field and discuss what they'd seen and, and what they'd written. And we sort of knew who was actually pretty much taking one side or not really giving the full truth. But mm-hmm. you don't argue about it because you just have your whiskey and get ready for the next day. Yeah, uh, It's essential that you keep... I mean, the, the camaraderie amongst journalists is very very strong because after all they're taking big risks and right. certainly in Lebanon we were right and there there may be I mean I don't know if you're you're able to see it this way at the time but it seems like uh, you know just considering that scenario there is some value in in having these multifaceted you know having 10 reporters with slightly different motives would be would be better than having one it seems like I think that's probably true um, I don't think press, you know, uh, newspapers and TV can really afford to have more than one or two maybe at the time. Of course, uh, when the story gets back to the foreign desk and the editor, Mm. they then have to make another judgment as to whether in their view the reporter is being fair and being objective and trying at least to get to the truth of the story. So there is a sort of second uh, um, edit barrier, if you like, before the thing goes into print. Mm. And what we always hear today is that the reporters don't write the headlines, and sometimes the headline is as important as the story itself in kind of absolutely uh, giving a an angle on something. Absolutely, that is so right. That's so right. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so you're there in the 1970s. Who were your models? Uh, was there an earlier generation of war reporters that you were looking to as the examples to follow? Absolutely. I am uh, was then, and I'm now a passionate uh, admirer of A.J. Liebling's mm. reporting in the Second mm-hmm. World War. Yeah. He was a New Yorker uh, writer. He covered the, that conflict in North Africa, then in France after D-Day, all the way through to Berlin. He was a fabulous writer. Uh, of course, he didn't just do that. He wrote the classic book on boxing, The Sweet Science. He wrote sort of about a dozen books. But to my mind, he was with Ernie Pyle, who was a Scripps Howard reporter, mm. the two greatest reporters of the Second World War. And I've got a copy of his uh, war reports here, which the Nebraska University Press produced some years ago. And I read it at night sometimes just to admire the very calm way. He didn't, he didn't and this is classic, he talked to the soldiers. He interviewed prisoners when he could. He tried to get both those very opposite sides to tell him what they'd been through. And it was always the ordinary GI that he, he got his information from. I mean, I would recommend to anybody listening to your program to take a look at his writing. Yeah. Were there models that you viewed as negative examples? Were there Was there a, a school or a, a type of reporting that you were trying to avoid doing? I don't think so, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we can go back to Hemingway, of course, who was involved as a war reporter, not for very long, but of course, and then who got a great book out of it. And uh, he changed the style with which writers delivered their books, I think. He had a huge impact. And if I can just put a, a side thought in here, my passion as a young man was William Faulkner. I read all his books. Now I can't read him. The sentences go on forever and ever. Yet you go back to Hemingway, and he writes in beautiful, crisp, short prose. It is so easy to read. Yeah. Anyway, that's just a, a side issue. Right. Well, what appealed to you about Faulkner when you did like Faulkner? Oh, it was, uh, I can't pronounce the, the country. The Yaknapatapa County? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been able to pronounce that. Oh, it was the, it was the, the country, the mood, the, the people. He just mm. conjured up a world, yeah, which right. for somebody in England age 16 was extraordinary. And you, you got into it. And at that age, 16, 17, one had the patience, surprisingly enough for a young man, yeah. to actually read all this and to get into it. As I Lay Dying is a great book. Light in August is a great book. But the style really, I think, inhibits a modern uh, day audience for getting into it. Right. Well, that's interesting because there is a, a famous example here in the States of the writer John Gardner, who happened to be Raymond Carver's teacher. And one of oh, the yeah. pieces of advice that he gave him was, read all the Faulkner that you can, and then read all the Hemingway you can to get Faulkner out of your system. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that's good advice. <laughs> Sounds view. like something similar <laughs> to what you've done in your life. Um, yes. <laughs> so what was it like? I mean, you were in Paris, and Hemingway had been in Paris. Did he have a kind of looming presence for you as a as a correspondent or as someone who was interested in literature? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, Hemingway was in Paris in the 20s, and he was so lucky because he was there with literary greats, mm-hmm. Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, Scott Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound. And there's a lovely story about Hemingway when he sent his first collection of short stories to, um, he was completely unknown, to Gertrude Stein. And she sent them back with a crisp note saying, Start over and concentrate. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Hemingway, this all comes out in Hemingway's book, A Movable Feast. Yes. And I cannot recommend that strongly enough yeah. to, 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 to your listeners. It's got it all in there. All the great people, the, you know, James, the man's got this, Gerald, and, and all the rest of it. It's a brilliant book. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, my wife uh, has not a whole lot of time for Hemingway and a lot of the you know, bullfighting and boxing and so on, but she loves yeah. a movable feast. It is, yeah. it is such it's, a, it's a brilliant uh, book. yeah, it really is wonderful. So you mentioned that Hemingway sort of changed everything for correspondents and writers who were, I guess, traveling abroad or who were in a war zone, or I'm not sure exactly what you meant, but what, what did you mean by that? Well, he was in France, wasn't he? He was up on the Italian border when mm-hmm. he got injured mm-hmm. um, in the First World War, of course. And I think he was driving ambulances at the time, if I can go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he was. Uh, and then he got injured. And all that comes out in, no, hang on, which one is it? A farewell uh, to Arms. A Farewell to Arms, exactly. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what he was doing. I mean, he didn't have a great war, if you like. He didn't go through it all as, say, A.J. Liebling did uh, in terms of um, actually witnessing combat. But it was enough to enable him to write a great book. Mm-hmm. Did you have him in mind as someone who could experienced the war as a, a newspaper correspondent as he was and, and sort of earn your living that way, but then someday have the material to write novels? Um, I certainly didn't model myself on him. I think that would have been a mistake. He's a great example for any young writer, any mm-hmm. old writer for that matter, yeah. because he did turn his journalism into uh, very good books, uh, certainly the first one. Yeah. But my models, the people who influence my writing most of all, probably are, Hemingway certainly was one, but I like, hang on, who's, who wrote The Long Goodbye? Who was that? I don't know why that name's gone out of my head, because he's a, he's a, he's a favorite of mine. But just to mention, the other writer that really has influenced me a lot is P.G. Woodhouse. And he's often dismissed as just a, a light comedy writer, but actually his prose style is extraordinary and beautifully written beautifully balanced sentences, amazing sort of grasp of the English language and beautiful choice of words. And a very light writer. Again, if you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, you want to get back to sleep. He's not a bad one. And the long goodbye, were you talking about Raymond Chandler? Of course I was. I'm sorry. I had an absolute brain fade there. Yeah. Yeah. So another very readable writer. Yeah. That is the duty, surely, of a writer is to be readable, to connect with the readership and as wide a readership as possible. Right. And I sometimes think modern fiction has gone has lost that sort of lesson. They may be uh, reading Faulkner without, without the corrective. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Since we're sort of pivoting to that, you're given your current role and the work you've done working for the Times Literary Supplement, you seem especially well positioned to comment on trends in literary fiction. And I was wondering if you've seen any developments in the past few years or decades that have struck you. Yes, there have been lots, haven't there? I mean, I think a, a lot of young writers write through the prism of current political trends, the Me Too movement, cultural trends, I should say, the Me Too movement, the whole gender issue, diversity issues. I think that's a mistake. Uh, not because these are political decisions, because, of course, great writers have always been political. Dickens and Tolstoy and Victor Hugo and Stondahl. You know, these you know, politics is essential almost in any great novel, if you, if you look at them. But I think they get into single issues that I, I think they've forgotten. There's too much banging of the drum. I think that's what goes on in what, in what a lot of young novelists mm. are doing these days. Mm-hmm. Too much projecting a certain viewpoint. 
and doing so without any sort of balance at all. The other thing that's really happened, which is a good thing, is that women writers have really come to the fore in the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years. I mean, we've always had great women writers from the time of, well, like we can go back and name Jane Austen, if you like. And they've come up, you know, you've got young Zadie Smith here in England, who's done a lot of work in America, of course, and those sorts of writers. I think we've lost touch with the need for a writer, A, to appeal to a readership, and B, to obviously sell books. And if you look at um, Ian McEwan, now Ian McEwan deals with big issues, but he does so in a way that actually takes the reader from page to page. He has a very strong sense of narrative. And that, I think, is lost on a lot of young, kind of new, new to the market writers. They seem to be in love with their own viewpoints and less concerned with character and less concerned with narrative. So I can't tell you that I really admire any single modern young writer. I can't. Well, I wonder if this is just to sort of circle back to what we talked about at the beginning when we talked about fiction being able to get at truth in a way that nonfiction is kind of superior to nonfiction in that it can ask you to hold contradictory ideas in balance with one another and see the truth in kind of the the difficult questions rather than the easy and obvious ones. And I wonder if uh, people have sort of stopped trusting fiction to do that and instead feel like, well, if I if I give the opposing point of view and kind of show that, you know, that a person is wrestling with something that is a very difficult problem. Instead, I'll try to solve the problem and I'll put that in here and then everyone will pat me on the back for being on the right side or, you know, for having come up with some answers or something. And instead, they're missing out that a lot of it is letting the reader kind of see the tension and sort that out for themselves. I quite agree with that. I mean, I absolutely do agree with that. Um, and I'm trying to think of the last great sort of big novel that did that. Um, and I'm not going to go back to Dickens' Great Expectations, but I mean, I do think we are missing in the current literary world big figures who can actually really embrace the reader and deliver big thoughts, judgments, or just huge opportunities for the reader to open a, a door into a different world. Mm. Um, and I can't think of a writer who does that at the moment. Mm. Wow. Okay. So any sense that uh, fiction, where it's likely to head next? It, it sounds like uh, if we if we don't have any practitioners who are even taking that on, uh, maybe we're just going to have a diminished kind of fiction, genre fiction, or uh, more entertainment-based fiction, but not the kind of literary fiction that we were maybe used to when we were growing up. Well, let me add a corrective to what I've just said, because okay. books are still selling. Mm-hmm. And here in England, we, we're, um, September, October is the big book season when publishers get the books out for Christmas. Um, and there are literally, I well, uh, scores or maybe hundreds of new novels out there. You go into bookshops and they have absolutely tables full of these these things. And publishers do this because they do make money out of them. I mean, those books sell. Of course, what they actually do is throw out, say, 10 novels. And if one sells, then they make the money back. Mm. Sorry to be commercial, but it is a commercial business at the end of the day. Yeah. So um, it's not that people aren't reading books, I, but I hear over and over again the sort of uh, mantra that if I don't get beyond page 20 or 30, I don't, I don't follow through. I'm not sure that people are really reading books to the end anymore. I mean, the paperback cost here 12, 14, 15 pounds. That's quite a lot of money to spend on a book you're not going to read through. Mm. Right. Okay, well, 
I hate to leave things on kind of a pessimistic note, but maybe I could say we do have a good example of a book where people might enjoy reading it in the old sense of learning a lot from fiction, but also uh, not being hit over the head with the answers. And that is Love in a Lost Land. So James McManus, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much indeed. That was a real pleasure talking to you. Mm, good stuff. And finally today, we check in with Peter K. Anderson. After we talked about the history of fools, who they were, and how they came to serve various kings and queens, I asked him this special question. Okay, I'm here with Peter Anderson, author of the book Fool in Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man. Peter, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, that's a very difficult question. But I, but I think uh, when I try to put myself into that position, I think that I would sort of like to go back to the ultimate symbols of, of safety and comfort mm. and then go back to the books that I, that I loved as a child. Mm. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, things that I've gone back to throughout my life, and uh, and I've been thinking about that because there's quite a lot of obviously, but if I'm going to choose one thing, I think it would be one of the Tintin uh, books. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And so that was how old were you when you were reading those? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, probably around 10 begins in that age. That's when you try to start to sort of appreciate Tintin and then you can read it all, you know, through your teens. And even as an adult, you can, mm-hmm. you can find other aspects of it, uh, the, the, the humor and the, and the uh, adventure, but, but especially the, the sort of dramaturgy and the, and the, and the structure of these books is very, very sophisticated. Um, and even there's even uh, a small dash of postmodernism in the, in the in the last ones that yeah. Urge, uh drew, um, and I, I'm thinking about which one because it's, it can't be all of them, obviously. <laughs> and I have a few uh, I have a few favorites, but I, I think the one that that I keep coming back to is Tintin in Tibet, which is yes. the most poetic one. Uh, which it has such beautiful images, uh, and at the same time, it has this sort of dreamlike quality. There's something very, very profound in that one, uh, which, which you can cherish both as an adult, and but which is also very appealing uh, to a child because it's a very exciting adventure story, of course. Yeah, it is such a, a an all immersive world to read Tintin. You just fall right into those illustrations and. And it almost feels yeah. like, uh, you know, it feels as real as reality. Exactly. Only I wish that reality looked like that. Yeah, I, I right. Wish that <laughs> buildings and streets and cars looked like that. Um, so, so the, I mean, there is a, a dose of nostalgia in, in reading Tintin, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't have nostalgia for it. It wasn't something I was reading a lot when I was a kid. I had seen them. 
but I didn't own any mm. or anything. But I do have nostalgia for a trip I took to Tibet, which is a really important place to uh. me. So maybe I need to consider Tintin in Tibet. Uh, maybe I need to put that on my short list for my final book as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is It is a bit about, about final things. Right. Okay. Well, Peter Anderson, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. So there you have it, Tintin in Tibet and Rhodesia in the 1970s. We are traveling around this January. Well, this is the time to dream of travels. I hope you have some good journeys in store for you this year. My thanks to James McManus and to Peter K. Anderson for joining me on this other journey I'm taking, this journey through literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.